Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 is our second reading. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and all of the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give thanks that you have given us your holy word written. And now by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that we might know your word proclaimed, that we might hear your living risen voice in and through this offering. Open our ears, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Growing up, my dad kept this little book in the glove compartment of every car that he owned. And every time we pulled up to the gas station for a refilling, he would pull out this book and he would record that day's date and the mileage of the car at the time of the fill-up, the number of gallons purchased at that moment, and the price per gallon that day. And slowly but surely, these books would fill line by line and then stack by stack. Dad, why do you write this information down every time we get gas? Maybe you've done it. I never got a straight answer that I can recall, but eventually it did dawn on me that we have so many varieties of ways that we keep track of the fact that we have been here and we have done this and we have come this far and it has cost this much. <laughs> Journals, scrapbooks, graduation certificates, tax records, health records, housing documents, passports, social security cards. How good, how helpful, quite frankly, how needful a thing in our society to have clear documentation. Proof that we've been here, that we've done this, that we've come this far and it's cost this much. Does it unsettle us then at any level that the very foundation of our faith lacks proof? I mean, the very best documentation that we have, the Bible tells not a confident story of Jesus raised from the dead at precisely this time in this way, and here's exactly how it worked. Here are the fingerprints our best documentation at this most critical moment while people are finding out that something has happened, the moment we name Christ is risen, our best documentation proclaims a story where confusion predominates. 
We hear those women going to honor Jesus, Jesus' body in accordance with the custom of the day. Of course, they expect to find his body where it was lain and the stone, stone is rolled away. There's no body and, quote, they were perplexed. Also translated, confused, bewildered. His body's not there. What does that mean? If we could just have some video footage or other documentation to make it all the more clear what happened, except I think at this point in history, honestly, we might know better than that. We live in an age with, with so much inv- information available to us at all times, we hardly know what to do with it. And the painful irony is, right, that, that, that more documentation, verification, recorded video, data, information, and all the rest has not made a society where we, where we see all the more clearly what is true and what is right, but actually we disagree, it would seem, all the more. I'm not so sure it would really make a difference if we had a few more pieces of data on Luke 24. What if instead it is a gift that the story unfolds with confusion at the center of so much of it? Because honestly, we're confused a lot. The things of this world that are unfolding, the things in some of our family and relational dynamics, the work situations, our faith, let alone what to make of our dying friend or family member or or all those who are dying amid an inexplicable war right now? And why now? And why is it happening this way? And and, and where do they go? And what can we do? And what should we do? And Good and bad, there is much this day that leaves us confused, perplexed, bewildered. And, And again, what if in some sense that's a gift. I remember sitting with a doctor as he explained to my family and I about uh, my mom's brain cancer and the surgery they'd just done and the options before us. And I remember thinking, you know, this is 2019. And what with all the medical advances and all the medical research and all the talent and energy that has been poured into fighting cancer, how is it that there are multiple well-trained doctors saying, well, we have a few options and, and we can't tell you quite how any one of them will go. And then each of these has variables and some unknowns and, 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 and this and that. How do we have all this information but no definitive clarity on definitely what is going to do the job? Oh, how I wanted just some more information to make a better decision. And amid that confused space, I was reading this book, When Breath Becomes Air, by Dr. Paul Kalanithi, who was diagnosed with lung cancer himself at age 35, and he died at age 37. He wrote this particular book in between the diagnosis and death. And it was the subtitle that that caught me in this very unsettled place of confusion. The subtitle is this, What Makes Life Worth Living in the Face of Death? Into the very unsettled place of confusion, before the empty tomb, a question arrives to these women by way of two messengers of God, Why are you looking for the living among the dead? 
And you wonder what the women start to think. We're not looking for the living. We're looking for Jesus. He's dead. But why do you suppose we're looking for the living? Does your question suggest he lives? Does your question suggest we might find him somewhere else? Does your question suggest he's on the move right now? It's but one simple question slipped edgewise into that opening that confusion will often create. But then it begs so many other good, unexpected questions and implications. And though it's two heavenly messengers of God asking the questions here, I can't help but think how often Jesus in the Gospels taught and encountered others by way of questions. And so it would not be surprising at all for Jesus to make his risen, living presence known in our confusions today by way of a question or two that gets right to the heart of the real matter. Amid all of our confusions and uncertainties around a medical decision or a family decision or the next step decisions or the anxieties about all of it, what makes life worth living? In the face of death. Amid all of our searching and our seeking, our moving, our trying, our attaining. For whom are you looking? Amid the perplexion of a dead end hitting the wall, a rejection. What if a kernel of wheat must fall to the ground and die? and then produce many seeds. Amid grief-filled confusion that can often come amid burial plans, logistics, and also just simply before the starkness of death itself, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Holy confusion is what you get when the inevitable confusions of life open just enough space within for us to hear God speak a fresh, living word, often a question. The angels in our passage, after they ask this question, they say, he's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you it would be this way. He was going to be handed over to the sinners. He was going to be crucified on the third day, raised again. Remember, he told you, remember, look back. Can't you now see the answer? When I heard that question, what makes life worth living in the face of death? Almost immediately, my family and I began recalling my, my mom's love for sewing and for singing and for grandchildren, which is to say her heart for creating and for loving. These things were always there right before us, but now somehow it was lucidly clear for the first time what mattered, which is to say the question prompted a remembrance. 
And while it was still hard to make imperfect decisions about her care with imperfect data and all the rest, it was, it was such a gift to navigate that sacred space between life and death with insights not necessarily gleaned with, with, from more information, but with a really good question that cut into all the confusion and opened a new horizon for how we would see and love mom and, quite frankly, how we would see and love our own lives. The question from these heavenly messengers draws the women not unto new information, but a fresh remembrance of Jesus' words. He said he would die, didn't he? He said he would die and then rise. A promise right there all along, but somehow so lucidly clear for the first time. And apparently, the remembering was enough for the women to race back to the others to tell them what they saw or did not see, and, and perhaps begin to sense what the implications might be for, for others who have this risen spirit upon them? I mean, if he lives, and his spirit is given to us, and if, if we face pain and hardship and, and betrayal and violence and even death itself, if this world faces all of that, and he said he so loved this world, if If he rises, do we rise? Didn't he also say that all those who trust in me, though they die, will live? I wonder if the church today is not unlike these women running unto the others. For all the records we keep and the documentations we have and and that we study, we don't nearly have it figured out. And what we have actually is better. We have been met in the confusion and the pain and the brokenness by Jesus. His risen presence, his questions that get to the heart of the matter, his love that is stronger than death. We have an encounter. And time and again, right, that encounter has moved us amid pain unto song, unto uncertainty, unto prayer, amid hurt, unto forgiveness, amid need, unto sacrifice, amid anxiety, unto generosity, amid weeping, unto joy, before the very face of death itself, unto hope. And when people live in a way that makes clear they believe that the tomb is empty and sin and death do not have the final say, despite all the compelling documentation to the contrary... That confuses people. So much so that uh, they they write it off as an idle tale, as, as some of these disciples do before the women. I just can't believe that. But then some, some see the animated way we move, we sing, we give, we... And so some are like Peter in this passage. They're confused enough to go see for themselves. And, and in Peter, he checks out the tomb, and we, we read he's amazed upon seeing it empty, also translated puzzled we end the passage and Peter is confused and maybe that's a very good place to be may you may your neighbors may your enemies may this world this Easter know the gift of a holy confusion 
where amid all that decenters us and destabilizes us, Jesus meets us. Perhaps meets us by way of a life-giving question or two that allows us to see for the first time or the hundredth time that yes, yes indeed, he lives. And because he lives, we live. And death and darkness and sin, they shall not have the final say. Thanks be to God. Amen.